We are always very much products of the time and place we live in. So, when a group of friends of the American South got together in the wake of the American Civil War to start a fun club, it's not really that big a surprise that it quickly transformed into the largest racist organization in the country. Yes, we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan, a terrorist group that has been responsible for literally thousands of deaths and violent acts over the years. But the Klan is not just one thing. It's had at least three different incarnations and today is a motley collection of power-hungry criminals and grifters who may or may not believe some of the inflammatory and even outlandish narratives that they use to try to bind the turbulent world of white supremacy into something resembling a cohesive whole. As always, though, people are who they are, and they can dress up in white robes with silly pointy hats all they want, but they can't really stop expressing their true natures. Very often, their ambitions and appetites end up being their undoing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Clown, Clown car. car! The KKK can KMA. As always, I remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, And along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The Ku Klux Klux Klan, Klan. version Version 1, Pulaski, Tennessee, south of Nashville, west of Chattanooga, today only about 8,300 people, and back in 1865, there were probably even fewer. On Christmas Eve that year, just seven months after the American Civil War had ended, six veterans who'd fought for the Confederacy decided it would be fun to play dress-up and start a secret society. They'd heard about the independent order of the Sons of Malta that had started before the war back in 1856 in the Indiana and Ohio area, a fraternal group that sort of lampooned the stuffy rituals and attitudes of the more widespread Freemasons, but still had rituals and rules of their own. Plus, the Sons of Malta liked to take part in parades, which sounded pretty fun. The six friends would dress up in outlandish costumes as ghosts or goblins or what have you and go around and play pranks on people in the town. Sort of a low-rent hellfire club minus the status and the sex. They also recruited new members, many of whom were very, very unhappy with this whole post-war reconstruction period and the northern, quote, carpetbaggers coming down there and telling them how they should treat black folks. In a short period of time, the Ku Klux Klan, as they called it, had been infiltrated by some extremely angry white guys 
who often told new members that the group's name meant Ancient White Brotherhood. Soon enough, these types were the majority, and the character of the group changed, taking on more of the character of an insurgency group than a fun, though rather mean-spirited one. Keep in mind that all through the defeated South, there were plenty who simply refused to abide by the guidelines of Reconstruction. Bands of violent white supremacists robed the countryside in many states, and other groups formed in Louisiana and Mississippi. These would attack any black people they saw behaving in ways they didn't like, such as exercising the rights that they now supposedly had by federal fiat, often burning down their homes or just killing them outright. They also went for northern carpetbaggers and scalawags, which is what they called southerners who had decided to abide by Reconstruction's dictates. The clans soon followed suit and started wearing hoods and masks to hide their identities from witnesses to the crimes they absolutely planned to commit. In April 1867, representatives of various chapters met in Nashville to kind of standardize things, since the Klan had become a bit chaotic. They elected their first overall leader, General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who took on the title of Grand Wizard. Leaders of smaller chapters were called Grand Dragons, and the hierarchy also had titles like Titans, Giants, and Cyclopses. These people were clearly into mythology. The clan grew bigger like a tick, soon becoming the largest organization of its kind, burning buildings and killing seemingly at will, often aided by police who were either members themselves or at least sympathetic. All through the South, preventing black people from exercising their new right to vote was a very important activity. The Klan also started thinking that overthrowing state governments in southern states was maybe a good idea to push through their agendas. Andrew Johnson, who'd taken over as president of the country after Lincoln was assassinated, was not the strongest of leaders, and things got well out of hand in the South. Grand Wizard Nathan Bedford Forrest claimed a national membership of 550,000 people and that they had killed literally tens of thousands of blacks. But when Ulysses S. Grant became president in 1869, he took a tougher line, sending in troops and declaring martial law in order to get the South back in line. He also wanted to weaken the Klan, and after a grand jury in 1870 declared them a terrorist organization, or whatever term they used back then, many federal indictments were handed down. Thousands of Klan members were tracked down, arrested, and imprisoned. The Civil Rights Act of 1871, nicknamed the Ku Klux Klan Act, allowed the federal president to suspend habeas corpus, which meant that they could just arrest people fairly willy-nilly. And by 1872, the Klan was dead. Forrest ordered any members still roaming free to burn all their regalia, which is what they called their costumes, and cease meetings and organizing. However, in the power vacuum formed by the Klan's demise, more militia groups formed, like the Red Shirts and the White League, both of which were talked about in a previous episode about voter fraud claims. And it all became such a massive headache for the authorities that Rutherford B. Hayes essentially agreed to end the policies of Reconstruction and let Southern states do pretty much whatever they wanted, short of actually bringing back slavery, in exchange for them giving him the votes so that he could win the presidency. And thus Jim Crow came to the house and came to stay. And so things would remain until compulsive club joiner William J. Simmons saw the movie Birth of a Nation in 1915. Invisible, Invisible Empire, Empire of the Knights of the, of the Ku Klux, Klux Klan. Klan. 
Writer and, quote, professional racist, as one modern commentator has called him, Thomas Dixon Jr. wrote what he thought of as his Ku Klux Klan trilogy as part of his lifelong effort to, as he thought it, purify America by having all black people deported. He was one of many who subscribed to the pseudo-historical lost cause of the Confederacy notion, which is sometimes just called lost cause, which said that the Civil War had not been about slavery at all, but about individual states having the right to prevent city-dwelling northerners from destroying the idyllic lifestyle that the South had developed. This wholly false narrative still lurks around today. I'm sure somebody has an uncle or a grandfather who has said pretty much the same thing. The first book in Dixon's trilogy was called The Klansman, published in 1905, which pioneering filmmaker D.W. Griffith adapted into his 1915 three-hour epic, Birth of a Nation, which glorifies the Ku Klux Klan and portrays black people as stupid, lazy, and degenerate. The film inspired some gangs of white men to go out and lynch black people. The film caused a massive stir with many complaints, protests, and even riots, and some cities banned showing it altogether. Because this film is so important in the history of cinema for all the techniques that it unveiled, there's been something of a lost cause argument for this as well, that Griffith simply made it because it just gave him a framework for his amazing innovations in cinema technique and storytelling. But that is clearly not the case. Griffith himself said that the purpose of the film was to be, quote, an influence against the intermarriage of blacks and whites. He also complained that some people were just trying to censor his opinions because his opinions just happened to not be popular or fashionable at the time. This is an argument we still hear being used today by wingnuts and opportunists. Enter preacher William J. Simmons, who was a member of no fewer than 12 fraternal organizations. He saw Birth of a Nation and found it to be very inspiring. Then he decided that he would bring the Klan back. He got together with some friends and wrote up a new set of rules and even found two older fellas hanging around who'd been in the original Klan back in the day. He would call this new version the Invisible Empire of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and he, of course, would be the head honcho, the Imperial Wizard. So on the evening of Thanksgiving 1915, he and 15 fellow racists walked up to the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia and officially proclaimed the Invisible Empire into existence. A massive pro-Confederacy bar relief would later get carved into Stone Mountain by racist Cutsum Borglum, who then went on to head the Mount Rushmore project. Both of these were talked about in a previous episode about American monuments. Dixon's book, which had been the basis for Griffith's loathsome movie, added some flourishes to the story of the Klan, like the use of a burning cross, which the original Klan had not used, but Dixon thought had been used by Scottish clans back in the old country. Simmons, the new imperial wizard, liked this a lot and used it that night on Stone Mountain, making it one of the dominant symbols of the new Klan. That first clan had also had costumes in all sorts of different colors, but Simmons really liked the stark look Griffith had used in his film, cladding the clan always in white. And with the tall, pointed hood borne by Catholic penitents in Spain called a Capriote, this too became part of the revived organization. 
Now, back in the early days of Reconstruction, those original six Tennesseans who'd formed the first version of the clan had grown up on tales of the old clan system in Scotland, since they all came from Scots immigrant stock, and one of them wondered if the Greek word kuklos, which means circle, had been the root of the word clan. He'd probably come across the term kuklos aldelfin, or circle of brothers, which was a fraternity at the University of North Carolina. And so started something of a love affair with the sounds K and L next to each other, starting with their name. They divided Kuklos into Ku-Klux, and then added the English, or as they thought of it, Scottish word clan, but spelled it with a K. Simmons also liked that KL combo, let's call it a Columbo, and used it all over the place in his new version. An individual clan lodge was known as a clavern, a meeting was a convocation, the book of rituals they used was known as the Quran. Yes, he adopted terms from the Muslim world for his white supremacist organization. Treasurers of a chapter are called a Klabi. A secretary is a Kligrop. A recruiter is an imperial Kligel. A chaplain is an imperial Clud. And when you join, you have to pay a one-time click token. It's all, frankly, a bit crazy. In addition to loathing black people, this new clan also hated people from Southern Europe, because they were often quite dark-skinned, Slavs, who were probably communists, they reasoned, Jews, just because, and Catholics, who were hell-bent on destroying Protestantism. Basically, if you weren't of Anglo-Saxon or Celtic stock and a Protestant, then you were fair game. Now, that's a pretty big collection of targets, and soon the clan's numbers swelled, gaining 85,000 members in just the first six months. And they adopted more and more of a stance of wholesome moral superiority that just happened to sometimes use violence to achieve their objectives. Later, they added yet more to their target list of hated types. Drugs, the people who use them and sell them, nightclubs, and roadhouses all got added to their naughty list, as well as, quote, violation of the Sabbath, unfair business dealings, sex, and scandalous behavior. Once prohibition kicked in, they also started going after bootleggers. They were basically a big, pissed-off vigilante group. Weirdly, they were very much for contraception, seeing it as a way to maybe stop the great unwashed hordes from outbreeding white people. Plus, Catholics were against birth control, and anything Catholics didn't like, the Klan did. It should come as no surprise that the Klan was also very into the idea of eugenics. One of their big ideas was that one day they would establish what we would call concentration camps for all non-Anglo-Saxon Protestants and keep them racially and religiously separated while they figured out how to get them all deported, even those born in America. And instead of being secretive like that first clan, this revived version became a recognized public group leveraging all the trappings of modern advertising and commercialization, staging legal rallies, infiltrating the labor movement to try and get laws passed that prevented things like mixed-race workhorses, and you could even join the Klan via mail. Members would often roam the streets of cities and towns attacking any couples who they thought were being salacious. So yes, we also had a morality police in the United States who were not officially sanctioned and yet tolerated by sympathetic law enforcement. By 1921, the new clan had grown to over 100,000 members. In the 20s, this would grow to an astonishing estimated 3 to 8 million, though exact numbers are hard to come by since, though the organization was out and proud, individual members still often hid their membership, since what they were doing was, you know, illegal. 
High-ranking members of society joined, including congressmen, governors, judges, and even a young Harry Truman joined for a while before deciding that it really wasn't for him. But they weren't without their detractors and enemies. In 1923, a countergroup called the Knights of the Flaming Circle formed. They wore red robes and hoods and basically recruited anyone who wasn't a white Protestant. Violent clashes with clan meetings, including one attack on a clan convoy or clonvoy, involved about 2,500 to 3,000 people. In 1924, open conflict erupted between the clan and the circle when someone bombed the mayor of Niles, Ohio's house because he wouldn't cancel a permit for a clan parade. The circle gathered a counter-parade 10,000 strong to confront the clansters, and before you knew it, there was fighting in the streets. The fighting went on for 18 hours and ended with martial law declared for the next 10 days. 1923 was a very busy year for anti-Klan groups. In addition to the Knights of the Flaming Circle, the All-American League formed that year, focusing on finding evidence of various Klan misdeeds which they would then pass on to the newspapers and the police. The Arkansas-based order of anti-poke noses, which is a great name, went after, quote, any organization that attends to everyone's business but their own. I kind of feel like we should revive the anti-poke noses. Many members of the public also hated the Klan, calling them a stain on the country and reminding the authorities that no matter how much you might personally agree with their aims, breaking the law is breaking the law. And a lot of what they did was truly nasty. The 1921 Tulsa race riots in Oklahoma may or may not have been started by Klan members, but there were certainly some present on the ground who helped prolong those events and up the body count. Despite their claim to being the moral leaders in a war for the nation's soul, many of the Klan leadership liked to, well, party. And since violence was such a large part of how they got things done, a lot of that partying was, shall we say, morally suspect, Word of boozing, whoring, and weird sexual appetites filtered down to the rank and file, causing many lower-level clansters to become disillusioned. Some claverins even tried to split off and go their own way, including a few that just openly supported Nazism. Eventually, they would just join the American Nazi Party. The fact that some subgroups of the Klan aligned with Hitler and authoritarianism further damaged the Klan's reputation. Then in 1925, 28-year-old Madge Oberholzer, a white literacy worker, became secretary to Klan Grand Dragon of Indiana, Dave Curtis Steve Stevenson. Steve really, really liked her, coming on strong, but she was not interested. But he pestered her and pestered her and pestered her, and she agreed to go out to dinner with him and then really wasn't interested. So one night, he got some fellow Klansters together and they kidnapped her. Stevenson kept her locked in a rail car he was using to travel around the area conducting his business, where he tortured and raped her repeatedly over the next days. During his unwelcome attentions, he also bit her repeatedly on the face, neck, breasts, back, legs, ankles, and even her tongue. Later, a medical examiner would say it looked like she had been, quote, chewed by a cannibal. She got a hold of some mercuric chloride pills and managed to swallow three in an attempt to kill herself and end the nightmare. She started vomiting up blood and her kidneys failed. This, plus a staph infection from the numerous bites that Steve had given her, resulted in her death on April 14th. But before she died, she managed to give a statement about Stevenson and the Klan, which she knew a lot about, to the police. 
When this all came out of the trial and with the attendant media firestorm, many people who had maybe been on the fence about the Klan and even some supporters became quite disenchanted with them. As part of his deal with the court, Stevenson had to give up the names of many high-ranking members, some of whom also had some pretty unsavory habits. Scandal after scandal hit them, and Klan membership and support began to decline. The 1929 stock market crash helped accelerate this trend, and by 1930, their numbers had dropped considerably, and central leadership had lost control, with many Claverns basically going their own way. However, some prominent members managed to get ensconced into positions of influence, like Justice Hugo Black, ironically named, a member of the Klan who got appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1937, where he would remain until 1971. But overall, the Klan was not doing so great and was struggling along as World War II broke out. Then human rights activist Stetson Kennedy infiltrated some of the Claverns still struggling to stay afloat and learned a whole bunch of details as to how they did things. He then convinced the writers and producers of the radio program The Adventures of Superman to make the Ku Klux Klan one of Superman's main villains. They agreed, penning the 16-part series Clan of the Fiery Cross, which ran in June and July 1946. The show exposed actual code words they used, details of their rituals, descriptions of symbols, and more to the public. Plus, Superman kicked their asses, and the clan members were portrayed as a bunch of incompetent, stupid heads. Two weeks after the final episode was aired, clan recruitment was down to zero. When clan members tried to have public rallies, members of the public would just show up and make fun of them. Then the IRS nailed them with a fine for half a million dollars for tax evasion, and that kind of did them in. The Imperial Wizard of the time officially disbanded the Ku Klux Klan, though some Claverns struggled on independently. Perhaps angered by how Superman had treated the Klan, obstetrician Samuel Green, Grand Dragon of Georgia, where they had kept huge crosses burning on Stone Mountain for many years as a sign of their commitment to the Klan's ideals, declared that the organization was reformed after he had another mountaintop procession and ceremony, naturally elevating himself now to the position of Imperial Wizard. When he died in 1949, former director of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Samuel Roper took over as Imperial Wizard. But then automobile paint sprayer Eldon Edwards, also from Georgia, became Imperial Wizard in 1950, and in 1953 started to actively rebuild the Klan once again. Knights, Knights of the of Ku the Klux, Klux Klan, Klan. Many people were really agitating for the end of these Jim Crow laws, and Edwards wanted a more robust response to the emerging civil rights movement. When Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka desegregated schools in 1954, he reconfigured the Klan again into the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. It was never as big as it was before, and operated as smaller, somewhat more independent groups, but they still carried out a number of violent attacks, acts of arson, and outright murder. Since they no longer had massive support, like the second version did, they went back to many of the tactics of the first clan. Among their victims over the decades were 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955, beaten and shot for flirting with a white woman. Developmentally disabled handyman Judge Edward Aaron in Alabama in 1957, beaten, had KKK carved into his chest and castrated. 24-year-old Willie Edwards, also in Alabama in 1957, beaten and forced to jump off a high bridge at gunpoint because of rumors that he was sleeping with a white woman. 
four schoolgirls ages 11 to 14 in the 16th Street Church bombing in Alabama in 1963, which also injured 14 to 22 other people. This was a direct response to calls for the end of segregation. Civil rights activist Medgar Evers in Mississippi in 1963 shot in his driveway for trying to enforce voting rights and end Jim Crow. Three civil rights workers, two white, one black in Mississippi in 1964, the so-called Mississippi burning murders. The murder of two teenagers, Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore in Mississippi in 1964, tortured, chained to cement blocks, and dropped into the Mississippi River while still alive. White civil rights activist Viola Liuzu in Alabama in 1965 shot twice in the head. NAACP leader Vernon Dahmer Sr. in Mississippi in 1966 burned in a fire set by Klan members for him trying to get black people to get out and vote. 24-year-old bricklayer and veteran Clarence Triggs of Louisiana in 1966 shot in the head just for participating in a civil rights march. A series of bombings in Mississippi in 1967 that included a synagogue and the residence of Rabbi Perry Nussbaum, as well as the home of activist Robert Kochik. Another series of bombings against school buses in Michigan in 1971. Dr. R. Wiley Brownlee, the white principal of Willow Run High School in Michigan, was tarred and feathered by members of the Klan, including then-Grand Dragon of the Michigan Ku Klux Klan, Robert Miles. Dr. Brownlee had been considering a tribute at the school to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the third anniversary of his death. Brownlee survived and went on to do great things. KKK members burned down the Mount Zion AME Church in South Carolina in 1995. In 2011, the body of 14-year-old Jason Smith of Louisiana was found in a lake with his organs missing. Police ruled it an accidental drowning, but family and activists insist that it was Klan-related. And Frazier Glenn Miller Jr., a former Klan leader, Odinist, and domestic terrorist, killed three people at the Overland Park Jewish Community Center in Kansas in 2014. He was found guilty and executed by lethal injection in May 2021. While quite a few members of law enforcement were Klan or at least supported their ideas, the FBI was not and vigorously pursued those responsible for these and other crimes. The good news was that KKK members often turned on one another, giving evidence in exchange for immunity. Small comfort to the victims and their families, but something at least. Karma's a bitch. They didn't always get away with it, though. After a very energetic Klan rally in Tennessee in 1983, heated-up members went out and shot four black women while a fifth woman was hurt by flying glass. All five survived, but two of the men were acquitted by an all-white jury, and the third was only given nine months, of which he served only three. But the women brought a civil trial, and in 1982, they won $535,000 from their assailants. In 1981, an Alabama black man named Josephus Anderson was on trial for killing a white law enforcement officer in Birmingham. The trial resulted in a hung jury, so a second trial occurred. This had the same outcome, and this inflamed members of Unit 900, a subgroup of the United Clans of America, who said that the problem with the first two was that black people were allowed to be included in the jury. Klan officer Benny Jack Hayes supposedly said, quote, 
if a black man can get away with killing a white man, we ought to be able to get away with killing a black man. Hayes gathered his son and a 17-year-old clan member, a gun, got some rope from a truck driver, and went driving around black neighborhoods in Mobile, Alabama, looking for a black man to kill any black man. They spotted 19-year-old Michael Donald returning home from buying cigarettes at a nearby store. They forced him into their car at gunpoint, drove him out into the woods, beat him with a branch, strangled him with the rope they brought, slit his throat three times, and then left his body hanging from a tree across the street from Benny Jack Day's house on Herndon Avenue. That night, two other clan members put up a burning cross on the lawn of the courthouse to mark this modern-day lynching. That burning cross kind of made it clear that the clan had been involved in this, and the three people responsible got arrested pretty quickly. Maybe it was not so smart hanging the body across the street from where you lived. But the narrative the police spun was that it was probably a drug deal gone wrong, even though Michael's mother, Beulah May Donald, insisted her son had never had anything to do with drugs. Yeah, yeah, said the police, and they released all three men just the same. And the FBI, who had also been investigating, was preparing to close their own case. So, Mrs. Donald contacted the Reverend Jesse Jackson, asking him to get involved. He led protest marches and put an enormous amount of pressure on the city. New charges were brought, and four years later, the younger Hayes was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment by a jury. But the judge changed the sentence to death, because by God, we don't lynch people in 1981 anymore and Harry Hayes was finally electrocuted in 1997. This was the first execution in Alabama since 1913 for a white-on-black crime. The other participant in the lynching, the 17-year-old, was also found guilty and sentenced to life, serving 25 years until he was released in 2010. And the truck driver who provided the rope was also sentenced to life, serving 28 years. Benny Jack Hayes was also tried, but he fainted in court during the trial due to a bad heart. He was 71 at the time, and he died of a heart attack before a new trial could convene. But Beulah May Donald was not finished getting justice for her son. She initiated a wrongful death civil suit against the United Clans of America. In 1987, an all-white jury found that the entire organization was liable for young Michael Donald's death and awarded Mrs. Donald $7 million. The United Clans had to sell their national headquarters building, but that only raised $51,000, so then they had to liquidate all of their assets, turning it into cash, which they then had to give their victim's mother. And so, the United Clans of America had no choice but to file for bankruptcy. And then sometimes it just went weird. In 1999, Indiana TV news reporter George Sells IV and cameraman Heidi Teal went to talk with Jeff Berry of Indiana about an upcoming Klan rally. He said he was the elected National Imperial Wizard, though he wasn't. When they casually mentioned they'd also spoken with Brad Thompson, a man who'd left this chapter of the Klan because he thought Barry was really just running a pyramid scheme, masquerading as a true Klan group, Barry became furious, demanding they hand over the footage they just shot as well as their talk with Thompson. They refused, so some fellow Klan members blocked their exit from the room while Barry went and got his shotgun as if to suggest that they either handed over the tapes or got shot. They got on the phone with their television station and, their bosses urging, handed the tapes over and were released. 
When they reported this to the police, well, the police didn't want to bring any charges. They said they interviewed some of the Klansmen who'd been there, and they had a whole totally different story. So the reporters went to the Southern Poverty Law Center, who initiated a suit against Barry for false imprisonment. Now, one reason the police may have been reluctant to pursue the claims by the journalists was that Barry had been, back in 1994, arrested for defrauding his elderly neighbor out of a lot of money, but then it came out during that investigation that earlier he had been a very productive narcotics informant for the police, giving evidence that led to more than 70 arrests. But he was an informant for profit, not out of ideology, and continued to commit a number of crimes. Then he found the Ku Klux Klan as a way to gain some of the money and influence he'd been craving his whole life, helping found the Indiana American Knights of the Ku Klux Klan in 1995. But criminals are always criminals, no matter what they say otherwise, and Barry had many run-ins with the law, getting arrested at least five times between 95 and 99. In 1996, he beat up a tenant at a property he owned who had asked Barry to repay some of the money that the tenant had lent him, and during a police search of Barry's home, quite a few drugs were found, as well as a number of handguns and a Mac-90 assault rifle. But something went on behind the scenes, and the tenant ended up dropping the charges. Once again, Barry was free to go. But then the lawsuit started up, and Barry tried desperately to hide all of his financial assets. As the case wore on in the year 2000, Barry got into an argument with a black man in a parking lot after a Klan rally, like you would. When the man drove away, Barry chased him for two miles and then rammed him with his car. He was arrested, and the police finally decided that they'd go ahead and also charge him with criminal confinement with a deadly weapon in that 1999 journalist's case while they were at it. I guess they'd had about enough of him. He was found guilty in 2001 and sentenced to seven years. The civil suit continued to go ahead as well, and the court awarded the journalists $120,000. Barry, who really didn't have that kind of money, had to sell the American Knights of the Ku Klux Klan headquarters building and both he and his conclave were basically bankrupted. But two years into his seven-year sentence, he suddenly found God and renounced the Klan. He got out for good behavior in January 2005. Danish photographer, writer, and activist Jakob Holt then interviewed Barry for a documentary Holt was making about racism. Now, Barry's son, Anthony, found his father's conversion rather offensive, and in the summer of 2006, at a backyard barbecue, Anthony got a few clan true believers, and together they attacked his 53-year-old father, beating him quite badly and accusing him of being a race traitor. Barry survived the attack but lost the ability to walk and went blind as a result of the attack. He died seven years later of lung cancer. As you can probably figure out from listening to this stuff, Today's clan is really a bunch of sub-clans, and many of those have fallen by the wayside in scandal or corruption or simply because key members have turned state's witness on their leaders in order to escape prosecution themselves. Today, there are clan groups in at least 21 states. Some groups are rather small, like one in Arkansas called Ku Klux Klan LLC, that's their actual name. Some are larger and have chapters in several states, like the Bayou Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the Imperial Clans of America, who claim members in at least eight states, the Church of the National Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, who claim to be the largest clan group with members in 20 states, and the Loyal White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, who also claim that they are the largest. There is also a clan group in the Panama Canal Zone. 
and a few have cropped up outside of the United States, including Brazil. Clables of the Clan. So that's basically the history of the clan. It started out as a bit of a lark for six friends and was quickly taken over by angry Confederate soldiers and sympathizers who refused to abide by the new rules of Reconstruction. It is unknown just how many people they injured and murdered, but it is almost certainly in the thousands and even possibly in the tens of thousands. The second incarnation tried to go mainstream and saw the largest membership numbers with millions at one point being part of them. Violence still happened, of course, though, and organizations that rely on violence attract the kinds of people who enjoy violence. This, of course, would be their downfall as scandal after scandal soured most people on the Klan regardless of their ideological stance. The third version quickly split into smaller competing groups, still carrying out violence, but nothing like on the scale they had in the past. One of the reasons that people might still in this day and age be attracted to one of the many Ku Klux Klan organizations would be that, yes, they are racist and would like to somehow get rid of all the non-white people. This, of course, is logistically impossible, so that kind of just seems like a losing cause. But gathering together with like-minded folk has always been something people like to do. And just because there's no way to make America 100% Caucasian doesn't mean it's not fun to sit around and dream about it, as well as complain to your new friends about all those nasty non-white people. Of course, the clan was founded even back in its innocent days on ritual and symbolism, and that too can exert a powerful influence on the human mind. Pretty much no one today is going to walk around in a white robe and a pointy hood, but three of the clan's main symbols continue to crop up on the internet and even in the real world. We all know the burning cross, of course. As mentioned before, this was used by Griffith in his film Birth of a Nation, and William J. Simmons liked the look of it when he reformed the clan in 1915. Griffith had taken it from Dixon's book, who had heard tales of it from Scottish ancestors, in Scotland, there was the Crantara, or Fiery Cross, which was used in clan warfare. When a Scottish clan put up a burning cross, it called all members of that clan to come to that area armed and ready to defend it. A flaming cross today is almost always associated with the Ku Klux Klan, since Scottish clans no longer fight one another in hand-to-hand -hand territorial disputes. Another symbol is the clan triangle, which is a triangle divided into four interior triangles with a K at each apex. So K, 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 just in case someone forgot the acronym for the organization. But the main clan symbol is the blood drop cross, also called the mystic insignia of the clansmen, which is another clan 2.0 innovation. This is a squared white cross with flared ends, kind of like a Templar cross, inside of a red circle with a red drop of blood inside a diamond in the center of the cross. Originally, the small central image was a yin-yang symbol. Then someone must have pointed out that they were using a Chinese symbol for their white supremacist organization, so they changed it to a drop of blood. No one tell them about Surah 96 in the Quran, called the blood clot, or al-alak in Arabic, where it says, quote, Recite in the name of your Lord, he who created, he created man from a blood clot. On the other hand, they do have a book of rules that they call the Quran, so maybe they won't mind the association. In addition to the KKK acronym, they have a few other acronyms they like to use. Akia, A-K-I-A, a Klansman, I am. A-Y-A-K, are you a Klansman? F-G-R-N, for God, Race, and Nation. It-Sub, I-T-S-U-B, in the sacred, unfailing being. I guess they mean God. 
Kabark, K-A-B-A-R-K, constantly, with a K, applied by all regular Klansmen. K-I-G-Y, Klansmen, I greet you. Clasp, K-L-A-S-P, clannish loyalty, a sacred principle. Lottie, L-O-T-I-E, Lady of the Invisible Empire, which is how they refer to female members. And they also use the acronym NSSA and the full phrase it stands for, Non-Silba Said Anthar, which means not self but others and looks like Latin but is actually a mixture of Latin and Gothic, a now extinct Eastern Germanic language. Clanners also like to use the number 311, where the 11 or 11 represents K, the 11th letter of the alphabet, and the 3 that precedes it is a reminder to repeat this letter three times. Modern clansfolk have also decided that urban gang signs are cool, which is pretty funny, and have started flashing their own, which is the right hand held near the chest, almost like they're trying to hide it, hand turned to the side, palm facing in, thumb up, with the thumb, forefinger, and middle finger extended. Three fingers, each one representing a K. K, K, K. All of these acronyms, the number 311 in certain contexts, obviously, and that hand sign have all been classified as hate symbols. Conspiracies. The clan today has, by and large, dropped the silly robes and hats, put on suits, and tried to seem like they're just reasonable people who have an alternative take on things, like how society should be run, who deserves to have rights, and history. That doesn't mean that they're limiting their activities to boardrooms and courtrooms, however. In 1981, the ironically named Don Black, a white supremacist, Holocaust denier who's also Islamophobic and homophobic, was one of nine men who participated in Operation Red Dog in the country of Dominica. This Caribbean island nation had got their independence from the UK in 1978, and the first PM elected was a man named Patrick John. When John lost his seat in the House of Assembly in 1980, he was not too happy about it, so he started plotting a coup. Don Black and other white supremacists thought it would be fun to flex their paramilitary muscles and hatched a plan to smuggle weapons to Dominica to help John out as he attempted to overthrow the legal government. Don Black and his buddies had already had a plan but to invade the country of Granada, but then when they heard about what was going on in Dominica, they changed operations to there. When federal agents caught up with the gang in New Orleans just before they were ready to set a course south, they found an enormous amount of guns, bullets, dynamite, and a Nazi flag. The media dubbed the whole affair the Bayou of Pigs. Clan members would increasingly seek support from hard-right authoritarian groups, specifically neo-Nazis. Don Black married KKK Grand Wizard David Duke's ex-wife Chloe Harden, and together, Black and Harden created the 1996 website Stormfront, the first hate website on the emerging internet. But we'll have to talk about that in a future episode, as well as how the white supremacist movement joined forces with the militia movement and learned how to use the internet in the 90s to create the stinking septic stew we see simmering around us today. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.